I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 28, please, this afternoon. Matthew 28. And I want to start a little series that's going to last just a few weeks, I think, but may have hopefully a, a more lasting impact on our lives and on our, on our church family. So Matthew chapter 28, and I want to ta- uh, title the talks here this afternoon, uh, the little series that we're going to do. Um, I guess you, I thought about na- a, na- a name for the uh, series this week, and something like, uh, Who Runs the Church would be a good title. Who, who Runs This Church Anyway? Um, or to be a little less catchy, but more accurate perhaps, uh, who rules in the church? Who rules in the church? Or to be the least catchy of all, and perhaps the most accurate of all, uh, authority in the church, or just church authority. Uh, it's pretty natural when we're confronted by authority, um, claims of authority to respond badly. You've never done that, right? But you've raised children, and you know what that's like. Um, there is something about being told you must that makes something rise within us. You know what I mean? I mean, there is that part of us that just doesn't want to be told anything authoritatively. Uh, and it's that old, natural, rebellious, sinful streak that we have. <clears throat> but the Word of God is filled with musts commands with authoritative instructions. Uh, We bristle against them because we're human. We bristle against them because we're Americans, I guess. And, you know, we started with a rebellion, for heaven's sake. So, you know, that's just the way we are. We're just rebellious sort of people. Or especially, I mean, hey, we're Texans, right? I mean, we're the Lone Star State at one time. We're like, we'll be our own country, thank you. Um, to, to talk about authority just seems so um, against the culture in which we live. But, uh, of course, the Bible makes it very clear that God is an authority over His children. There are no John Wayne, I did it my way, Rambo Christians in Christ's church. There, are, there is a people who are submitted to her king, a a country submitted to her king. There's there's a body under its head. There's a bride who follows her husband. That is the people of God. And, you know, plenty of times I've talked to people who don't like the thought of, or at least their experience of church authority. And they will, they've said things to me like, um, I, I'm a Christian, I'm, or I'm a spiritual person, I'm just not, I don't have room, time for organized religion. You've ever talked to anybody like that? I'm spiritual, I just don't have any time for organized religion. Um, and frankly, some of the organized religion that they've been exposed to, they shouldn't be <laughs> subjected to that. Um, But nevertheless, God's plan has always been for His people to be united together under His headship expressed in church. 
And there is a danger when you find people who say, you know, I don't go to any one particular church. I just kind of go wherever I want to on Sunday, or I just listen to the radio or the television preacher, and I get fed. Well, there, there is a certain, certain amount that, that's, that, that it's true that we can be fed by these other sources. You know, some of you listen to sermons on the Internet to good spiritual benefit. Or you read books. You, you get teaching and training from other places. And, and boy, thank God for it. But it is no replacement for living as one of the people of God under the authority of a local church. That kind of thinking puts a person, in my view, in a grave, in a very dangerous place. A person who has no church, who has no accountability, who has no pastoral oversight, is a person who is in danger of having his soul ensnared and nobody notices. And nobody cares. Or maybe they care, but nobody notices. Because he's not a part, or she's not a part of a church. There's something good, right, about our meeting together like this and in, 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 in being united together as a body um, in a way that we are accountable for, in a way that puts us in close proximity to not only hear teaching from each other and, he, and listen to exhortation from others, but to hear teaching and listen to exhortation from people whose lives we can watch day by day and week by week and year by year. There is a great benefit to us in that. Boy, thank God for His church and for the local church that is an expression of that authority. So where has God vested His authority in the church? And if we're going to talk about authority in the church then we may talk about authority vested in three entities I'd like to take up over the next few weeks. His authority manifested in the apostles. His authority manifested in and through the congregation. And His authority manifested in and through pastors and elders. But this afternoon I wanted to begin by just reminding us of the ultimate authority of of, of the church which is Jesus Christ Himself. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build, what? My church. It is His church. It is His church. I'm reminded that, in one sense, there aren't churches. There is a church the church that belongs to Jesus Christ the one that he the one that he laid down his life to save of course in another sense there are many churches individual expressions of that but in every case the churches the church belongs to him it is Christ's church so i had you turn to a passage here in Matthew 28 the one one that i made reference to at the, the introduction this morning um, look to look at several passages I know this is a reminder to you of what you know this afternoon. 
And uh, I am not fearful about reminding you of what you already know. That's good for your soul. And if that was good for the Apostle Paul, it's good for me to go back over what, you, what we know, to be encouraged in it, to be reminded of it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus says to His disciples, All what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ here claims that He has been given by God the Father authority over the whole world. Now, of course, as God, Jesus always had authority over everything, right? Always. But the authority that He's talking about here is not that authority that He always had as God over everything. This is rather, and I don't have time to really defend this or develop this very much, but this is the authority that is given to Him as the rightful reward of His obedience to God in the outworking of the covenant of redemption. This is His rightful authority over all of the nations of the world as Lord over all creation, and He is entering into that authority having been obedient to the Father and uh, calling His disciples to go out and exercise the spread of that authority. Um, a few other passages. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Right, so just flip around a little here. Colossians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 17 and 18. Jumping into the middle of something, but very clear it's talking about the Lord. Christ, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. God's plan for the church is that it would be an organism united in a head. And that head is none other than Christ. He is the preeminent one in all of the people of God. And if you turn to Ephesians, you get sort of a complementary passage to this. Um, in the end of Ephesians chapter 1, <coughs> where he says, beginning in verse 20, again, we're jumping into the middle of something here, but it's talking about, uh, Paul's praying that we might come to know the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And this is the power, he says, that, that God worked, verse 20, in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Again, this is not Christ's inherent authority as deity. This is His enthronement authority that is being spoken of here as the culmination of the outworking of redemption. He is enthroned in heaven far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And verse number 22, And God has put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things 
to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So here we see something different. Did you notice it? Are you following? In Colossians, God made Christ to be the head of the church and head over all things. In Ephesians, he says, he gave him as head over all things to the church. In other words, he is not only the head of the church, but he is the head of the church and the head of all things for the benefit of the church. So again, Christ is preeminent. He's held up. He's the authority. He is the one whose church it is. And then if you turn to the last book in the New Testament, finally to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. And beginning in verse 12. Can you look at it there with me? He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John in a vision. He turns to look at this voice that was speaking to him. And he says, And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Hmm. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's a loaded term all the way back from Daniel 7, carried throughout New Testament, Jesus' own use of it. I saw the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest. And the hairs of His head were white like white wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. And from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead person, as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here is Christ the Lord. And notice the the image here. He's standing in the midst of these lampstands which represent the churches. And the angels of those churches, the messengers of those churches, whether they're angelic or human, those to, you know, he's about to write a letter to be carried by messenger, as it were, to every one of these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And as he's, as he's there, pictured in the midst of the churches, he is holding these messengers in his hand. He is the Lord of his church and all of its individual expressions. He has them within his immediate reach in the palm of his hand within his power. And you see that as it's unfolded in each of these seven churches, the authority that Christ has, not only over his church as a whole, but over each individual assembly. Notice in beginning in chapter 2, still in Revelation, verse 1. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He's picking up on that imagery from chapter 1. And who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you go down to verse 4, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And look at this. Look at what our Savior says to this church in ancient Ephesus. He says, if not, if you don't do these things, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the Lord is threatening the removal of this church or at least of its testimony of its light in that community if they do not repent of their um, coldness and their um, lack of love. He goes on in verse number 10 to the church in Smyrna. He writes, verse 10, Do not be weir- uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And look at what he says. Look what Jesus says. If you're faithful, I will give you the crown of life. It is his to give, right? Or his to withhold. Or look at chapter, uh, look at verse number 15. Now he's talking to the church at Pergamum. So also some of you hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is false teaching. And some of the people in the church at Pergamum were holding on to it. And he said, repent, verse 16. Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them, that is, those who are holding to that doctrine, with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the one who conquers, I will give from the hidden manna, I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It is the Lord's authority and the Lord's right to hold this church into account to to make war on the church or to give it a new name. And if you look at verse 26, he says the same thing to the church in Thyatira. Just let your... Let your eyes keep going over these texts, all right? Let this settle in on you today. He says, The one who conquers, verse 26, and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nation. So he, remember the one who said, All authority in heaven on earth is given to me? He says, I have the ability to give that authority to my churches. That authority, um, the effectiveness and the power of the gospel over the nations, and he says, and, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So there is, and this is a good place to stop just for a second before we look at the last couple, and that is um, we're reminded that not only does Jesus have inherent authority over all of his church and over each of their individual expressions, but he also delegates that authority in some cases within the church itself. As he says here, the authority is mine. I will grant authority as I see fit within my church. Okay? And then in verse chapter 3, verse number 5, he's speaking now to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 5. And he says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before the angels. And, and, and He is the one who has the authority to do that. He has the authority to blot the name out or to leave it there. He's the one who has the authority to give the garments or to withhold. Verse 7, now to the church in Philadelphia. Look at the beginning of this. This is powerful. To the church in Philadelphia, write The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the what? 
the key of David who opens and no one will shut. That's unprecedented authority. He has the keys to the kingdom of Almighty God. If he lets you in, you're in. If he shuts the door, you will never get in. That's what he's saying. This is the, the authority that Christ has that he expresses within his church. And then if you go down to verse 12, he says, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. It is his right and his uh, prerogative to do that. And then finally down in verse 19 to the church in Laodicea, he expresses his authority over the church when he writes, those whom I love, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The Lord exercises his authority in his church by reproof and discipline as he wills. All through the scripture is very clear that wherever Christ's church is truly formed, he is in her midst ruling over her. Let me say that again. Wherever you find Christ's church truly formed, he is in her midst and ruling over her. One last passage, and that is Matthew chapter 18. Would you turn there for a moment? This is uh, another powerful expression of authority within the church. Matthew 18, and beginning in verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, You've gained your brother. <clears throat> this is not talking about um, minor differences of opinion that we have as Christian people, but rather um, someone who has committed a real sin against another brother or sister um, or is living in sin before the Lord. In verse 16, he says, If he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, not part of the church, an outcast, not one of the people of God. No Christian recognition. And verse 18, he says this. Now listen to this. Here's the element of authority. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Does that sound, um, I mean, that sounds almost presumptuous, doesn't it? Don't you think? Whatever the church binds on earth, it's bound in heaven. Whatever the church looses on earth, in other, in other words, the church is exercising a kind of authority to bind or loosen, to open or shut, that kind of authority that seems to be only reserved for Jesus Christ himself. And yet he says, whatever you do is done in heaven. How can the church be said to have that kind of authority? And here's the answer. Continue to read. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there, what? There am I. There I am among them. In other words, it's not just the church meeting as a group of people that carries this kind of authority. It is the church meeting under the presence and lordship of her Savior. 
It is Christ being present in and with that assembly. So that, and, and that's why what they bind on earth has been bound in heaven. You see the word for at the beginning of verse 20? That's what he's saying. Here's the reason. For wherever they are gathered together, Christ is there. So it's not the church has authority and then Christ has authority. It's the church has authority because Christ has authority in her midst. It is always Christ who bears the ultimate authority in the church. It would be a kind of divine effrontery if Christ was not in, present in and ruling in His church. But that is exactly what happens. You know, when we meet Sunday after Sunday, and especially when we receive members or when we excommunicate members or when we, um, when we uh, choose deacons or all, all of these things that we do as a church, um, we do not do them independently of Christ, but as an expression of the rule of Jesus Christ. And that is so essential. It is His spiritual presence here with us. Even right now, as I proclaim to you the Word of God, if I proclaim the Bible to you in any way that's binding on your conscience, it must only be and can only be because Jesus Christ Himself is ruling His people through His Word. It is only to the extent that I am faithful with this Word or anybody who stands up here or teaches you it is the extent that he is faithful with the Word of God, the Word of Jesus Christ, to, that, that is an expression of Christ's rule through his people of his church. So we can't divorce the church's authority and Christ's authority. It is Christ's authority. It is an, it is an extension of his spiritual presence. There's another passage, and I was going to have you turn there, but you just listen. But you see a, a bit of an analogy um, in Paul's apostolic authority. And it also comes in the context of binding and loosing, uh, that is, of church discipline. Um, and you see it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to just make a note of it, um, you can go back and look later. But listen, listen to what he says. This is Paul now. Okay, Paul says to the Corinthian church, even though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. And as if present... I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's talking about a brother who was living in clear, unrepentant rebellion against Christ, okay, and besmirching the name of Christ. He says, I have pronounced judgment in your midst as if I were there. Even though I'm not there, I'm there in spirit. And he says, when you are assembled, talking to the church of Corinth, are you tracking with me? When you are assembled in the name of Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver that man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does he say? He's saying, you, when you gather together, Corinthian church, you have apostolic authority to do this thing, this binding and this loosing, this casting of this one out of the assembly of God's people with Divine, with apostolic authority, even though I'm not physically present with you. Now, if that is true of the apostle of Christ, much more so is it true of Christ himself, who while not physically present with us, is nevertheless present among his people in his spirit, and so 
in that is exercising his own divine, holy, righteous rule over his people. As imperfectly as we understand it and receive it, yet it is his rule and his rule alone that is ultimate in his church. Wherever Christ's true church exists, there he reigns. There he is commanding. There he is rebuking and restoring and teaching and leading and providing. It's Jesus, it's Christ, brothers and sisters, that we come to hear and to submit to every week. It is a holy thing for a body of believers to gather together like this. And I hope that God will grant us a cultivation, an increased cultivation of the aware, awareness of the presence of Jesus and His rule over us as a church. Now I want to take, make, take time to make a few applications, and then we'll be done. Um, what does it mean for us to know that Jesus Christ is present and reigning wherever his true church is manifested. Well, let me give you six applications here this afternoon. Are you up for that? Good? All right. Just making sure. You can walk out. You're not being held here, but... Y'all are doing great. After lunch, you know. So, six applications of this. Number one. Being under Christ's authority means being a part of a Christian church. Kind of something I've already hinted at. Being under Christ's authority means being part of a Christian church. Because that is where he manifests his headship, his rule. It is over here. Now, of course, as God, he rules over all things. But in the outworking of redemption, he manifests his Throne rule in his people, in his church. And so, if you're going to be under Christ's authority, that means you're going to be a part of a church. It is in the assembly of God's Spirit-filled people living together in mutual accountability under godly pastoral leadership where the Word of God is carefully preached week after week after week that Christ manifests His rule. I grow pretty skeptical of people who say, you know, I love Jesus, but they're completely out of fellowship with any expression of His body. Not only is it a dangerous place to be, it's also, it's also hard to take at face value the person's word that they are in submission to the Lord who manifests His rule in the church. Corporate worship then is not an option for us, but a requirement for those who are under the authority of Christ. When we gather together, you know, a lot of times, one of the, what's one of the first things, not every service, but a lot of times one of the first parts of our order of worship our um, liturgy. What's one of the first things that we do? We are called to worship. Who's calling us? It is Christ. You understand what I'm saying? 
It is Christ who summons His people to worship. Through the Scriptures, as we read them, as we are called, it is not the pastor who's calling y'all to, come on, come on, worship with me. It's not primarily even one another where we're saying, hey, come worship together with us. It's Christ who calls us, who summons us as the King and Lord of His church to come into His presence with singing, with joy, with humility, with a gift because of all that He has done for us. It is the sovereign summons of a king to His covenant people like when God came down on Mount Sinai and summoned His people to come into His presence. You remember what that was like? They were under the authority of the one who shook the heavens and earth. It's the way it is when we come into the presence of God in the church. It is Christ who calls us. It is He who's in authority. Being a part of Christ's, being under Christ's authority means of being a part of Christ's church. Secondly, we should take away this that no man, no mere man, is ultimately the authority in the church. It's pretty obvious now. No mere man is the ultimate authority in a church. Much as you love your pastor, much as you love preachers, your teachers, much as you love writers of good books that have met spiritual needs in your soul, much as you love other brethren, they are mere gifts of your Savior. Mere gifts. Keep your eyes on the giver. Keep your eyes on the Christ. No? As you hear my words, let them be but an echo, hopefully a faithful echo, but an echo of His voice. Keep your eyes on Him. He's the leader of His church. He's the Lord and Master of it. Number three, because there is one ultimate head of the church, there is ultimately only one church. That's what I alluded to at the beginning, I guess. There is one church. And that has implications for us. Um, some of those implications are borne out in um, what I think of as companion letters. Um, you know, you've got 1 John. We all know that one. That's one that probably you've done a Bible study on at some point in your life, 1 John. But then there's 2 John and 3 John. And those ones we kind of skip through real fast. You know, we read them like along with a bunch of other stuff in our daily Bible reading because they're so short, you know. And what's 2 John and 3 John about? 2 John and 3 John form really a complementary pair with 2 John admonishing us to be careful about the truth of the gospel, to love God's people in the truth, that the truth is a non-negotiable, that the, that the purity of the gospel is something essential, something worth contending for. Jude writes in a similar fashion, right? So contend for the gospel. The gospel must be held in purity. We should have discernment and rejection of false teachers. Second John. But what's third John about? You ever read third John? Third John, in complimenting it, says that we should not only contend, but we should extend. We should extend Christian recognition 
to those who are truly emissaries of Christ. We must extend Christian recognition to them. And there were people, there was a guy in particular that John writes about in 3 John by the name of Diotrephes. Everybody know that name? Diotrephes, what was the, what was the deal with him? He loved what? He loved the praise of men. He loved to be the one that was predominant. He liked to be, you know, oh, this was the church of Diotrephes over here. These were the followers of Diotrephes. He was one, um, the Bible says, who, quote, likes to put himself first. And he refused to extend Christian recognition and hospitality to other brothers who were coming into his town, who were preaching truly the gospel, but he refused to recognize them because it was all about him. And it was about his following. It was about his church. And that was, that was what John wrote to combat. So he says in 2 John, hey, make sure you reject false teachers. The, go- the purity of the gospel is essential. But, on, but in 3 John, he says, but, but you also must extend Christian recognition to those who truly belong to the Lord, not hold it back in some sort of personal um, expression of pride. And I, and I think the way it works out for us is that we've got to always remember because there's only one Lord of the church and it really is one church in the long run that we're not in competition with other true churches of Jesus Christ. It's not a competition. It's not us versus church XYZ down the road. And, you know, we got to be a little bit better than them. Oh, yeah, we're really, we're really better. Or we got more people, or we got nicer facilities, or we got more programs, or, or other denomination, this denomination or that denomination. You know, it, it is we've got to guard ourselves against that kind of party spirit that magnifies a man or a one particular assembly or a denomination or whatever over over others you know there are people there are people who who've left our little assembly here and have gone on somewhere else and you know sometimes for sad reasons and, and sometimes, you know, I just scratch my head and say, you know what, it's Jesus' church. And if it's built up, then I thank God, you know. Um, guard ourselves against that kind of spirit. And then number four, this means that, or I should say this adds a seriousness to what we do in the church. This adds to the seriousness of what we do when we come together. Here's what I mean by that. When we come together to worship as a church, who gets to decide what we do? Who gets to decide how we do it? Who gets to decide what's important? Who gets to decide which direction we go? (laughs) Well, the Lord of the church, amen? The one who's in charge. There are churches who begin their meetings I mean, first get established as a church this way. They go out into the community and they poll the community. They say, what would you like in a church? And they take all of the input from all of the people in the community and they sort of put it in a little chart and graph it all out and then say, okay, here's how we can make a church that really, you know, helps the, you know, meet the desires of the community. And, you know, of course, we don't want to be insensitive 
to people around us. But friends, this is not our approach to church at all. Our approach is to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. When we accept members or dismiss members, it is not we but Christ who decides. He holds those keys. All of our opinions about church and what we should do and who should uh, serve us and lead us and all of these, all of these things, the, the, the direction that we go as a church all needs to be subservient to Him. In other words, we need to be in earnest about seeking the Lord of the church when we gather together. This is a serious and holy thing. As part of the church of Christ, we are no longer free to conduct ourselves as we want. We are people under authority with no more right to come and go, to act, to speak, to think, to present or absent ourselves in worship than Christ Himself gives us. It lends a seriousness to what we do in the church. Number five, this means that Christ rules His church and He does so by His Word and through His Spirit. How does Christ rule His church? Well, we're going to go into that over the next few weeks, but in, 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 in the most basic and the most ultimate sense, He rules His church by His Word through His Spirit. So it is essential that we learn to submit to both. I, you know, really the essence of the Christian life is pretty simple. There's a, lot of, there's a lot to learn about being a Christian, but the essence of it is pretty simple. Number one, I learn God's Word better and, and yield to it. And number two, I learn to walk in His Spirit. That is, the, under the constant sensitivity to His promptings informed by His Word. If I do that, I will live the way I'm supposed to live. Christ rules His church through His Word, by His Spirit. Learn to be sensitive to both. The Word that instructs our minds and the Spirit that brings it to bear in our circumstances, in our experience. And then finally, finally number six. All of this means that when you come to church, you ought to be listening for Jesus Christ Himself. Listening for His voice. It's not the voice of a man that we hear when we gather but the voice of Jesus Christ. If the voice of that man is faithful, what you really ought to listen for is the voice of Jesus. And I don't mean just know that in your head, but be conscious of that. That when you come, you're coming to hear Christ. Listen to Christ summon you to worship. Listen to Christ admonish you to confess. Listen to Christ assuring you of pardon. Listen to Christ speaking to you the Scriptures. Listen to Christ commanding you to live out His Word. Come to listen to Christ, consciously yielding yourself to His voice. One preacher said, fall on your knees, you popes. Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees, you kings and queens. Fall on your knees, you self-appointed lords of the church who lead it in your way and not His. 
fall on your knees, you who deny Scriptures or replace it with anything else. Take your place on the ground, you who put your creativity and human will between Christ and His church. John Calvin said, Hence, should anyone call us anywhere else than to Christ, he is empty and full of wind. Let us therefore without concern bid him farewell. The body, the church, will, ha- will be in a right state if simply the head which furnishes the several members with everything that they have is allowed without any hindrance to have the preeminence. And that is what we want to do. That's what I really want to do. I hope that that's your heart too. Let us fall on our knees and acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only Lord of the church. And may we know, may we sense even His presence here with us and His rule. Come next week. Come to our service next week with a little more anticipation than you've had before to experience the presence and the rule of the Savior. And if we all come with that kind of heart, we trust that the Lord will rule and guide in His church. Let's be dismissed with prayer. Our Lord, we humble ourselves before You and acknowledge Your Lordship over all things and especially your rule and reign over your church. We rejoice in it. It gives us comfort and security. Lord, we do want to pray that you would manifest your lordship and give us a sense of it. Keep us from anything that would detract from your rule. Please help us to guard, O God, against following our own desires and rather to follow the Savior and the Lord. And I do pray, and I know we're all praying together, Lord, but especially for for me, as I preach the Word, Lord, that You would cause this assembly to quickly forget anything that is not in keeping in line with Christ's rule that I would be submissive to the rule of Christ expressed through this body, through your word, through the apostles. But, Lord, that we would all be under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus, we pray now that if there is any part of our hearts, our behavior, that is not in submission to your lordship of our lives individually, We ask you right now, solemnly ask you to pursue us with gracious discipline and faithful mercy that you would not let us go our own way. Please make the word powerful to us. Please rule in our midst, we pray, and in our hearts. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.